welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, welcome back for another Knock On Podcast, and uh, this is going to be a pretty cool episode. Um, as many of you know, I'm a hunter as much as a target archer, and uh, just the other day I was out uh, pulling stands, getting some new stands in, and I was using uh, my new side-by-side that I got from Yamaha, and I thought that it'd be pretty cool to uh, call someone that was in the know-how, a good friend of mine, Steve Nessel and talk a little bit about uh, some ATVs and a little bit of hunting strategy and hunting stuff today. So, uh, hey, Steve, thanks for joining in, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for all of you out there uh, who don't know, I, originally uh, Steve and I met probably, I don't know, it's, well, technically we had never got to hunt together till this past year, but you and I uh, got introduced by a mutual friend, I guess, back in like 2005, I think after you saw that billy goat hunt that I had done with my friend Darren up at about 11,000 feet on a Yamaha dirt bike, and uh, and I had told you that I had always used uh, Yamaha stuff, and, you know, here we are nearly 10, eight, 10 years later, and, you know, I'm still using them, and I've learned a lot from you about the, the product, what sets it apart from everything else, and uh, I guess more importantly, um, I'd like everyone out there to know one of the things that I think is coolest about Yamaha right now is the fact that you guys opened a really nice plant down in Georgia and you're employing a lot of American people. So maybe, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, every, um, our entire line of ATVs, um, and side by side, even the sport ATV stuff is not coming out of a production facility, a manufacturing facility down in Newton, Georgia. It's, uh, something that we've been promoting um you know kind of screaming from the rooftops as much as possible for the last three or four years um i i can't say built or made in the usa due to the legal reasons because the engines um are still coming from japan and and in in all honesty that's a very good thing we make great engines uh, the guys at yamaha over japan make great engines but they're they're bending tube and sparks are flying chassis builds from the ground up they're powder coating painting putting these things together piece by piece, and I think it's like 98% of parts outside the engine are, are built in the factory or, or sourced, sourced from North America, so you're, you're absolutely correct. This is American jobs, it's a American craftsmanship, and it's American pride. These guys take huge, huge amounts of pride in, the, in what, they, you know, what comes off that line, and, and the durability and reliability of our product is something that they hang their hat on, and, and I, I you know, thank you for the opportunity. I love to talk about it, because I, I love going to the factory and watching them work, and and see the painstaking process and, and just how you know much effort they put into making sure these things are as good as they can be when they when they roll off that line into a truck and then eventually into a dealership and and then onto you know a food plot or into a shed or a garage or if you're throwing sands or bear or moose or whatever into the back so it's, it's pretty <laughs> cool stuff for sure yeah yeah and I don't think I ever told you this but um, I've actually got several messages from people that that actually have worked down or do work down in the plant down there and who are, you know, fans of the show 
and uh, who kind of sent some messages just saying, you know, hey, thanks for representing Yamaha, and, you know, we work down here in Georgia, and, and I've had a few little conversations with them, and, you know, you can definitely tell that they're excited about what they're doing down there, which is, you know, super, super cool. You know, I know that right now the market, to be honest, every time I turn on the, the tube, I see a brand that I don't even know the name or know how to pronounce the name of. But I guess for me, you know, I look back to when I first started hunting, uh, you know, I guess I don't, I guess it was 30 years ago now, you know, I remember being on a little green Yamaha four wheeler, uh, you know, with my uncle, which I guess probably liability wise, I shouldn't have said that for you, but (laughs) you know, I remember, um, the Yamahas being bulletproof even way back then. And, you know, there's, I guess as hunters, especially as, as bow hunters right now. And, you know, I guess for the target archers too, I can say right now that I move a lot of targets around and, uh, you know, I know that several of the guys that are real serious about 3d shooting and have their own courses and stuff, having a side by side with a bed in the back makes a heck of a lot, uh, of a difference getting to, you know, for ease of moving targets around to change your course around all the time. But I guess above and beyond that now, you know, when I look at myself as a hunter now compared to being a bow hunter even 10 years ago, you know, you got ground blinds, you got chairs, you got, you know, almost everybody's trying to film themselves. You got camera gear. Now, now everybody's got a Dave Smith decoy or a buck decoy. And, you know, I guess the goose hunters, the duck and goose hunters, it's not like back in the day where you just kind of carry a dozen decoys on your back. You know, it seems like everybody's got a couple dozen full body decoys and, you know, being able to pull a little trailer or fill the bed of a, of a side by side and take a bunch of guys out at one time is really making a, you know, hunting's changed, hasn't it? It, it has, you, you, and you really pretty much just set the stage for why side-by-side vehicles and, and and units like our Viking are, you know, the sales for those things are growing. It's it's really the one of the only growth segments. As we come out of, you know, a bad time in the economy, things are starting to pick up across the board, but even when stuff was bad, these side-by-side vehicles, the Rhino before it, the Viking now, for Yamaha, we're still, you know, growing leaps and bounds year on year, and it's because of the things you just talked about. It You can put more people into them. Um, and you can put a heck of a lot more gear in if you need to or want to, and a lot of guys do these days, because you mentioned about hunting's kind of evolving, and people want to pretty much take the kitchen sink with them. Um, they can they can tow a trailer, or they can tow uh, you know a, a, a bail blind or a tripod or whatever kind of blind they're using um, behind the vehicle as well. Um, you know the three seat Viking now, you can take not only your hunting buddy, but you, I mean you can have a guy drop you and your buddy and your camera guy off. You know it 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 it's really cool and convenient um there's comfort involved as far as getting you out there um accessories to keep you the wind off i mean it's it really we are catering to kind of that activity to everything you talked about we're we're building this vehicle we built the vehicle and continue to build accessories and evolve the vehicle line um for the outdoorsman i mean that they're at the core of you know who we look at when it comes time to have this thing you know at the end use, at the end user, what he needs, what he wants, how he uses it. Um, at the whole time, you know, the underlying thing being durability and reliability. If you're, if you're doing everything we're talking about and the thing breaks down every three feet, you know, obviously you're going to come away with a bad experience and that's not what, uh, not what we're about. So yeah, we want, we want to, 
we want to be the the vehicle and the company that people can rely on to to get the job done. And whether that's what you're talking about from setup, getting into the field to all all the way to harvesting. I mean, we, we didn't even talk about it, but food plotting and you know these things as tools and working the field itself is uh, it's huge as well. And oh yeah, and two inch receivers and you know knocking or attaching uh, implements and all that kind of stuff is is definitely. Uh, within reason and expected and uh something these things perform well at as well well you know uh just the other day on my instagram uh post i guess and for those of you out there who have instagram we're at at knock on tv and then steve and them will be at at uh, yamaha outdoors but uh you know i posted um you know my my viking that i got last year uh stacked plum full of uh, some brand new eagle beans, you know, and I'm going to be putting in, you know, probably 15 or 20 acres of, of eagle beans for the deer. And, uh, it's nice to be able to, to put that much, you know, I guess the one thing I'll say, cause I know, I know right now that there's going to be a lot of people listening, especially the Canadians, um, because all of my Canadian buddies had a Yamaha Rhino, like, Every place I've been bear hunting, every place I've been moose hunting, um, they all have rhinos up there. And, you know, I know that when the Viking came out, you know, it was hard to, I guess, to separate yourself from something that you've liked for so long. And I really liked the, the rhino. But, you know, the biggest selling point for me at first with the Viking was the fact that I could put three people in it. Like, that was that was really what made me you know, want it the most. And then from there, every single thing started to stand out a lot different. The fact that you could, you know, I can put that much more weight in the back of the bed and more weight in the back of the bed. And then with the power steering, you know, even someone as small as Sharon can just steer that thing in and out of, you know, wherever you're having a zigzag to get back into some tight food plots. They're able to turn those things so easy with, you know, even with the full load in the back and that makes a huge difference. But then, you know, I even look at my good buddy, like, uh, Dustin, who you met up on the moose hunt, you know, Dustin's, you know, he's a middle-aged farmers, you know, building more and more farmland all the time. And, you know, he's having to go out, check fields, he's doing fence, working cows. And, you know, his, uh, you know, when he goes out and uses that thing, you know, he even told me, he said, I like the fact that I can you know, drive within my cornrows with the tires, you know, which that was a pretty cool feature for the farmers. But, you know, I think for those of you guys out there that had a rhino in the past, um, and I told, actually, I told you this, a big part of why you went on that moose hunt with me last year, Steve, was I told you, I said, I know you think you know what your vehicles can do, but until you come up and, and hunt with, with Bert and Dusty up at Lobo Peak on a moose hunt, you really have no idea what these things can do. And, uh, did I, was I wrong about that? Well, I, you, you know, I don't like it when you tell me I don't know something, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, you know, really quick before I talked to Bert and, and, you know, little Pete, cause that was an awesome experience. And it, it, it definitely is. It, we, yeah, we need to talk to how the Viking proved itself, but, um, yeah, I, I have a lot of rhino guys cuss me. You know, when I get me in, they're like, you, you're making me buy a Viking. And I'm not making them do anything. It's because they're 
they sit in this thing and they see the advantage of a three-passenger capacity. You know, and a bigger cargo bed, you know, it, it holds more, but it's also physically bigger. So it's uh, the Rhino guys, are, uh, you know, they're, they're not happy with us because they, they immediately want one. And that's not a bad thing. But I remember getting off the plane up there in Prince George and Bert looking at me and, you know, Basically, I just met the guy, and two minutes in, he's telling me there's no, there's absolutely no way that Viking's going to do what his run up um, And I, you know, I kind of, the last thing you want to do is tell, you know, an outfitter and a, a buddy of a buddy that if you think he's wrong and you don't want to get off <laughs> the wrong foot. So I just basically copped out. I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know how you use it. I haven't seen it yet. You know, he's lived with his his rhino for years, and we're just going to let the next week uh, tell the tale. And uh, and and we we absolutely ended up doing that. I mean, we. I'll let you. I'll let you start it off. But we took the Viking and the Rhino in the same places, and you know, yeah. not to get to the end of the story too quickly. But the Viking did. Yeah, because it was everything we we asked it to. <laughs> yeah, you and I did a two-on-one hunt with Bert, and we had uh, we had my good buddy Matt up there as a camera guy. So um, you and I got a, a a Viking from the Yamaha dealership. We got one of the rentals up there, and uh, and then Bert and Matt were in the, in the Rhino and, you know, Bert at first kind of just said, well, you know, you guys driving the Rhino and try to keep up. And, you know, he has all his little trails that he's pretty much cut through hundreds and hundreds of miles of some of the gnarliest terrain British Columbia can offer. And every single day he kept looking back and just shaking his head. Like, I can't believe it's doing that. And then and then I think I sent you a text, but, you know, I just got back from a bear hunt up there. And, uh, uh-huh. you know, when I got up there, there was a brand new Viking in camp. They they bought a Viking and they had tracks on it. And they were actually doing a grizzly hunt um, on the Viking with tracks. And that thing looks so cool. And then uh, and then by the time the grizzly hunter left, they, uh, they pulled the tracks off. Uh, only took about an hour. And... Uh, put the wheels back on and and we uh actually when i shot my bear uh we were using the viking to get around um it's nice to well one for those of you up there who are covering that kind of country you know you're just you have so much diversity of where you can go and then also obviously fuel economy compared to driving a big truck all around is is pretty substantial too but uh you know what other See, I've pretty much used it here in the Midwest for whitetail hunting. Obviously, um, I've I literally can squat the thing down with tree stands and and steps and chainsaws and you know I guess uh, for all the for all the uses I've I've used mine for TSI work, farming, uh, you know, obviously hunting. Uh, but then, you know, originally my original uh, rhino that I had. Um, I used that thing the very first I got one of the very first green ones and it was mainly because I was always moving archery targets around and uh it was so nice to be able to do that and have that dump bed cuz I was always carrying big target butts around and now this one there's no question about it you can you know I don't know it's got to have probably close to a third more room in the cargo bed I would guess I mean, it seems like it's it seems like it's got quite a bit more. I guess you would know the exact specs on that. Yeah, don't, yeah. <laughs> actually, off the top of my head, I know I'm afraid you're going to put me on the spot, but uh, yeah, no, it's actually it's wider, longer, deeper. So volume wise, I wish I did know the percentage of 
of extra space um, in comparison to the Rhino. Obviously, it's a it's a byproduct of of just a bigger chassis. You know, you get a three passenger vehicle versus two passenger vehicle, and that's just going to come along with the territory. But you know, we made best use of it by by designing the cargo bed the way we did. I mean, a couple of small things about it that a bunch of people appreciate, you know, immensely is the fact that it's steel for one. Some of our competition have like rotomolded molded or plastic cargo beds that can warp, or if you if you break them, you got to get a whole new deal. I mean, the steel one guys guys like to fabricate and kind of make these things their own. And this way, they can weld on it, either to fix it or to you know turn it into something that they need it to do. Um, and then it's 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 a stamp steel bed, which means there's nothing. It's it's flat. It's got a flat bottom. You can drop a pallet straight into this thing with no wheel wells getting in the way. I mean, there's nothing you know preventing maximum use of that space if that makes sense so it's uh so it's meant to be you know a big component as far as using this thing as a tool but also user friendly so that you can tweak it fix it and just use it you know to the max yep well let me just i guess one thing too i want to mention um see every every company that i deal with even the ones that you know i guess aren't a hundred percent in the uh in the industry of of being necessarily archery, you know, specific, you know, the one thing that I continue to see with you guys is that you have people there that are truly enjoying, you know, the hunting side. Cause a lot of these companies, obviously they recognize a market for the hunters and they may just throw some camo on a, on a version. But when it comes to actually people that are out there using it, I mean, you know, you're out there all the time with with writers, media people. Um, you guys are continually testing. I mean, you hunt more than I do. I'm kind that's of je- not true. That's I'm, not true. I'm jealous about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you're lying. But, no, <laughs> it, it, I'm glad you brought it up because it's one of the things I'm really proud of as far as just the, our group. And it's, it goes from our core group of guys. we got, you know, we're not a huge team, but the six, you know, six key team members, five of them, our hunters and all five bow hunt. So right. yep. it's a, it's a pretty cool deal. I mean, I, the first time I ever hunted, you know, and it was, I've only been hunting for about 11 years now, but the first time I ever hunted was in Illinois on a whitetail hunt with a bow. And I, I managed to knock one down my, my first time out. And I've obviously been hooked ever since, but it's not just our group members, which is super important. But I mean, you mentioned, you've heard from people at the factory, a lot more of our field sales guys that I expected are hunters and, you know, we'll get on and like our Facebook posts and, you know, things like that because they appreciate and are jealous of me and you both that we get to do is, you know, this as much as we get to do. And, um, obviously I count myself blessed and lucky that that's the case, but it's important to, to, to grow awareness for the fact that the Viking again is, is built with the outdoorsmen in mind. We, we definitely had them at the, you know, kind of in the crosshairs, if you will. Um, you know, when it came time to design the vehicle. So, we want to get out there. We want to showcase it, highlight, you know, its its features and benefits. And, and also, to your point, the fact that we live a lifestyle. I mean, we're very lifestyle-pointed in, in how we market it because that's who it's built for. We might as well market it to the people we're building it for. And, well, heck, if that means i got to get out and get into a deer camp or go shoot a turkey, <laughs> then, I'll, okay, so tomorrow I'll do that. Yeah, yep. That's what I loved about uh, – That's what. well, I guess I, that's what I love about being in the archery industry is, you know – Sharon, Sharon supports me too, but you know, at first it was hard for her to realize that you really have to, you have to test this stuff in the field. And, 
you know, although I was on a hunt last week, man, I really need to try this out just to make sure it works before it goes into the market. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> that, I mean, that, that's my excuse anyway when I do it. Well, I, again, it's not, you say excuse, but it's, it's based in reality and truth. I mean, you got to get out, you got to put it through its paces and, um, you know, there's so many, you know, so many people want to take a vehicle and ride it up and down a road and say they know what it's like. And, you know, up to a certain extent, sure, absolutely, you're going to get a feel for something. Maybe see how power steering, it lightens the, the steering, you know, it helps you get through those turns or maybe reduces the feedback from the terrain when you hit a big bump. But until you get up and, and start to, trying to get over a beaver dam with bird up in French charge, you're not, you're not really <laughs> experiencing what the vehicle is actually capable of. So. Yeah. Well, last year um, I went to that AT event in, in Vegas, and I've mentioned this on a show but, uh, you know, I was able to drive almost all the brands literally side by side in a really cool, uh, you know, like you said, it wasn't it wasn't British Columbia, but it was an obstacle course that showed you some important aspects of having some type of a, you know, a recreational vehicle. So there was, you know, things that showed the difference in, with, you know, what independent rear suspension will do, you know, having having that independent suspension on all the tires and then also, you know, for cornering and, and you know, and then if you if you put a load in there, how it handles with that, um, you know, and braking, obviously going down hills with, with a load in the back. And, you know, it was, I'm actually, I actually wish, you know, everywhere people could go could have that because then people would really understand. Um, I know that years ago, you know, years ago when I was working at a different archery company, um, you know, we came up with the idea of being able to let people, you know, test fire the bows in the store. And a lot of times, you know, people would say, well, do you guys try to, you know, we had some, some different magazines and stuff always interviewing us on our marketing strategies. And it was, you know, do you mind if your bows are in, uh, the same store as a major competitor? And, you know, I think if you're making a product that you believe in, you want that to happen. You want to be able to give a true side-by-side comparison because, if it's the right company and if you're building a product that you know you've tested the things that you liked and didn't like about products on the market as well as your own and you've made those improvements, you want people to be able to experience those right there without having to, you know, to leave there and, and go to a to maybe a different control. You know what I mean? It would be it would be super cool if if people were able to to have that same type of test as what I had when I was out there in Vegas. It, it would. Um, yeah, and why wouldn't you want to highlight your competitive advantages? I mean, you're absolutely correct that, that when there's people, other people making quality products, and there's no doubt about it, it, it is of quality. Um, but when yours is better because you, you kind of have to come into the market at a better place, right? I mean, otherwise, why would you build it for your product? I say that I work for Yamaha. I've had the advantage of, of you know, Make, introducing some groundbreaking product that our engineers and designers have come up with. And in Vegas, when you rode the Viking for the first time, or drove the Viking, I should say, um, yeah, we had the competitors' products there. Um, and so you could see how it stacked up against the, the vehicles it was positioned directly against in its class. And 
And it's it's a tough thing to do for our dealers. I mean, it's we have a couple of trucks where we go out and do this, you know, similar type of demo rides, and we go to riding areas because you can't just drop a course down in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's a little cost prohibitive, unfortunately. And that's the that's what our dealers are are kind of you know up against is that they don't always have a a good representation of you know rough terrain nearby. And obviously, we don't recommend you drive these things on the street because they're you know low and Low pressure, off-road tires, um, you know, it's just not designed for on-road use, so it absolutely shouldn't demo them on pavement, but not every dealer has, has dirt readily available. So it's, it's a tough thing on paper sometimes, you know, we're talking about the Viking and, and against the competition on paper, sometimes they're right in line and it's hard to know who's better. Um, and the durability reliability thing is not going to jump at you off the page. You really have to get in there. Neither is comfort, um, or some of the, you know, real minor things quick example is the middle seat in the Viking compared to anything in its class. I mean, it's a full seat with a slightly, you know, um, with a backrest, it's slightly back five degrees so that you're not shoulder to shoulder with the guys on either side of you. I mean, it's little attention to detail items like that in this vehicle that really kind of, they add up and to set it apart. And, and until you can get three people in it, until you can get it into some rugged terrain and, you know, put it in a four wheel drive and feel power steering and, you know, put a full load in the back, you know, and and see how it performs with the full load. Um, you know, it's hard to really expect someone to appreciate it, and that's why we always say butts and seats is is what's going to sell this thing. And 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 through you know third party, you know, credible, authentic testimony through you know, like yourself, so you guys put it through its paces and has no reason to tell any, anybody else otherwise. Um, it's 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 a it's 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 hard. It really is sitting on a showroom floor. You want people to be able to go out and do it and. And that's why we have demos and stuff, but it's, you can only get a couple people at a time. So we continue to fight the good fight, though, and uh, and I'll continue to go out and, and put people in the seats and get in the passengers. I mean, I'm a control freak. Don't get me wrong. I don't like sitting in the passenger seat, but if uh, selling the Viking by putting someone in the driver's seat is what I have to do, then I'm going to do it all day long. I guess that's why I didn't get to drive one or moose hunt. <laughs> it's true. You didn't drive very much, did you? I never, drove, I never drove a single <laughs> mile. Not one. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but you like to tell people where to go too. So there's a couple things that work there. <laughs> there, I, there was a couple places I told you not to go too, but you had to try uh, it yeah. out. I don't know. We need to get into that right now. That was such a that was such a fun hunt, though, man. And you know what's funny is, um, you know, I I know that to a lot of people, um. You know this podcast. I don't want it to come across as being a, a big sales pitch because although it, you know, I know that it's going to sound that way, but you know, I wanted to talk about it because I know that almost all my friends have some type of a vehicle, and I get asked all the time, you know, how I like what I'm using, and you know, people know that I've really only had two vehicles pretty much as long as I've hunted, and you know, I just. I really, really, really like them, and the hunts, you know, there, there's hunts where you can't use them, you know, unfortunately, there's spots where you can't take them, and, um, but there's also certain types of hunts where you can, and honestly, you know, that was, that moose hunt was really my only unsuccessful hunt last year, but it was the one, it was actually the one that I looked back through the pictures of the most, because, we just had a riot. I mean, the fact that we were able to just explore some of the places that we went and, 
getting some of the trouble that we got into and, and then got out of it, obviously, you know, it was, uh, it was just super, super cool. And, you know, and I think for a lot of people, you know, unfortunately the success is not a hundred percent with hunting. So I think an important part of it is, you know, being able to have a true experience and, and be able to, you know, enjoy everything about it, not just, the success of the hunt. I know that for us getting out there and, you know, beating around all of the, the start of the Rockies up there with Bert in both of the vehicles, man, it was, uh, some, certainly some laughs I'll never forget. I mean, a good time for sure. I am a little tired of you telling me I'm the, re- you know, I was the, part of the only unsuccessful hunt you probably ever had. Um, especially up there now. And I, and I understand that it's, um but well it rained on us for eight out of ten days it it did rain quite a bit um it it was it was tough hunting but it was fun it was a fun fun trip for sure you're absolutely correct Uh, i mean i i don't expect to be a hundred percent successful i i don't i I haven't by any stretch in my hunting career and i i just hope to have a chance to to spend some quality time with friends in camp number one probably and then Ideally, see some game. <clears throat> I mean, we didn't. Yeah, we didn't knock anything down. But uh, well, we, we got, got a, a we got a grouse. We got a grouse. Uh, <laughs> I had a grouse at sixteen <laughs> yards. Um, but we got hunted by that grizzly bear that one morning. I mean, we. Uh, yeah. I, I saw my first moose in the wild. So it's. Uh, I. It doesn't matter. None of that really. I mean, it. It just chalk it up. I mean, again, being out there. Period. Um, making new friends, hanging with friends. Uh, it was an outdoor. Uh, it adventure. was a whole new experience for me. Yep. Okay. I said it was an outdoor adventure. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I say this several times, you know, I've always, I've been, you know, I became a target archer to be a better bow hunter. Um, and I'm a bow hunter because I was a target archer. But for me, you know, hunting and those types of experiences and, and learning to be able to make a good shot, you know, if we would have had one opportunity, you know, and, and you're a great shot too. I watched you shoot. You're, you're, you're actually super serious. You're almost more serious when you're shooting than me. I was kind of like, man, I'm kind of screwing around too much with this guy. He's like, he's got like the eye of the tiger. You, you had this, this look, you were pretty intent, but you know, I think that, um, for me, you know, a big part of why, I've, why I've been in the target industry and why, you know, I've, obviously a big following that I have and a big number of people that are listening to the podcast right now are, are going to be target archers. And, uh, you know, these types of experiences and these types of hunts are really what kept me in that field too, because, you know, I, I really enjoy that sort of thing. And here in the States, you know, we're uh, a big part of our season is hunting related, um, as well as target, but, you know, have you ever, I've never even asked you, have you ever gone and done like a, a 3d shoot or anything like that? No, I've, I, I haven't ever done like a, a shot of course or done a competition. I'd love to, I, I, I'd probably be pretty nervous, but I'd like to give it a try. I learned on a 3d range, um, shot at a pie plate for about five minutes and then went right into the <laughs> yeah. 3D targets from, from distance elevation and stuff. Uh, and, and that was invaluable as a starting out process as far as what I was shooting at from, from a hunting perspective. But, um, no, I, I haven't. I'd like to, it, it's hard. I'm, I'm in the concrete jungle in Southern California. It's hard to find 
arrange, much less time to get to it. Um, but I do. I, I force myself. Um, you know, starting well about a couple weeks ago, we're in, we're in May, end of May, all the way up until season starts. I, I really try, start trying to get the bow out a couple times a week. But I, I mean, it, it's kind of a question for you because I'm I'm hoping to get out on an elk hunt this year and and eventually back up to Canada. But I never shot at distances like that when we went up last year. What you know, whether it's your your range time or whatever, how do you how do you know where you're comfortable? I mean, I know you just took a huge poke at a bear. Um, I would never in my wildest dreams ever think of going that far because I don't have your experience. But you know, when we went to Canada, I was I was comfortable at, you know, probably 70. But I before that, I wouldn't have taken a, a poke at an animal outside of 40. So I, oh, yeah. I really wanted to get my distance up. How do you go about getting, you know, getting an extra 10, 20, 30 yards Depending on what you, whether you're you're at a, a, just a range or if you're getting out, you know, getting out after an animal. Well, you know, that's that's a super good question because I think for the most part, I think the majority of the people need to to really understand that when it comes to ethics, um, because there's a lot of people right now doing long range stuff on YouTube, and you know, obviously these long shots are becoming a big um, thing. And honestly, I'm going to tell you right now, I was, um, I did make a long shot. I don't tell people, you know, I won't say how far it was now because I'm not, you know, I don't want to promote that. You know, every, there's so many things that come into factor there and, um, long shots for the most part, you know, are going to be, are going to definitely fuzz towards the unethical side. And there was a guy that, that actually came to the bear hunt. I don't know if I told you this, but, um, he was from like Washington or Oregon or something. And, you know, I feel bad cause he said he really liked the show and he was, he was, you know, a follower of the show. But, you know, he also said that he does a lot of long distance shooting and he was up there slinging arrows at these distances that were outside of his comfort zone. Well, he thought they were in his comfort zone, but you know, once you get the, a little bit of pressure on you, things change fast. It's no different than, you know, you look at the Olympics, the best of the best in the world, and they sit there and shoot, you know, tens all, you know, probably thirty to 40,000 arrows a year at that distance. And then as soon as one little bit of difference gets, you know, from a pressure point of view, and all of a sudden they sling one and, you know, shoot one 10, 12 inches off the mark just because of a little tension, obviously the same thing's going to happen when you have some buck fever. So, you know, I think it's very important that you learn to shoot at longer distances because it does teach you, it magnifies what you're doing wrong. And certainly it's going to help if people, um, if you have someone there that's able to tell you, okay, well, you're missing, you know, you're hitting a lot to the left because, you know, because of that extra string pressure you have, for example, a lot of people crunch the string really hard into their face. So then once they get outside of 30, 40 yards, they start not being able to group near as good, whereas their shot execution could be fine, but that extra string pressure is starting to, that arrow is going to start opening up for the groups. But, you know, I think that for the for the average person, I think it's important to learn to shoot at some longer distances because it's going to make your shorter ones seem that much easier. Um, and actually... I was one time I was shooting a national championship in Australia and I knew 
that I had to shoot 30, 70 or 30, 50, 70 and 90 meters, um, for that event. So at home, I was more worried about my 90 meter score than anything. So for about a month and a half, all I shot was 90 meters. And I remember when I got to that tournament and we shot 90 meters and then we came up to 70 meters because the target face is the same size from set from 90 to 70 the bullseye looked so big in my scope i was like i kind of i'm like is that the right target you know (laughs) i hadn't seen it look that big in my sight picture because i hadn't shot at that shorter distance and it just it was so easy i mean it it just felt like it felt like I was holding so good because of the fact that the bullseye was so much bigger in my sight picture. And I think that's what will happen if people, you know, for the guys out there that are still shooting at a pie plate or still shooting, you know, at a block target or something, you know, take that thing outside of your normal distance. You know, I think it's important for people to, to know that, you know, you shouldn't really practice shooting at the super long distances for repetition on like a windy day. I think it's, I think it's really good for creating positive habits and, and good and a good solid sight picture that you go out on calm days and try some of that longer shooting. But, uh, you know, if you're, if you're out there and you find at those longer shots, you're, you're having a lot of left to right, um, you know, misses, you know, that'd be a good time to ask someone that, that might be able to help you or ask your dealer, um, you know, maybe do a Google search, um, or go to DudleyArchery.info, read a few articles about some of that stuff. Um, there's so many different factors and why you can miss at those longer distances, but when you do it, it sure does change, uh, you know, how you shoot, you start to see all the small things that you can, you know, your shot routine and what you're thinking about as you're pulling the trigger, it goes from maybe one or two things of just put the pin on the target and shoot. You start thinking about a couple of the smaller things. And, you know, you're, I, one thing I can definitely say is, you know, although Steve hasn't been shooting a long time, I can tell you he was a great shot. And what, the most important part of your whole shot process is your patience on your trigger. You know, you pull back and you're patient with aiming and pulling through. And I know that you do some gun hunting and I know that you enjoy that. I've never seen you shoot a gun, but based off how you control your trigger as a bow hunter, it would, I would probably say that you get a lot of that from how you shoot your rifles. And that's the biggest key. I mean, if you can, regardless of your distance, if you can still have the same patience on what you're, you know, letting your pin float around a little bit, try to hold it as still as possible, but then continually build pressure on the trigger instead of just wanting to slap at it, it makes a huge difference in how effective you are really at any distance. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because it wasn't always like that, not early in my my bow hunting, bow shooting career, I, I was, I was slapping at the trigger. It was about three years ago now that I was at a range, a local range and the guy stopped me and, and he had me do something that I just saw you promote via one of the, one of your dead center segments, um, which was to wrap my finger around cause I use a wrist, a wrist release yep. and, uh, wrap my finger around and not really be pulling with the finger as much as, you know, just bringing the elbow and the arm back. And 
once you're anchored and and it's yeah that, i started doing that and at first it was uncomfortable it was a change and it, it wasn't you know but it, pretty much right away i started shooting and grouping better so i've been doing that and yeah i i guess i like to take my time and and you know make sure that i'm concentrating he called me uh i had a tiger or whatever felt like i'm making fun of me but whatever i, don't, <laughs> I wasn't i'm not gonna i'm not gonna take it lightly and you mentioned you know distances and i was that's why i asked a question because not i've been mostly whitetail hunting for for my my you know my career and i i said i wouldn't get outside 40 so i never really practiced outside 40 until we we're going to go on this hunt and in Canada, and I figured I, you know, I might get a longer shot. So I started started going out to sixty and seventy and even eighty at times. And and one thing I found, as you mentioned, and it blew me away, was you know forty used to be a, a pretty much a tough shot for me. And if I spent some time at sixty, seventy, and forty all of a sudden felt my twenty. I mean, it, like you yeah, said, it yep. huge, and I could hold the the pin there without it, you know, without it jumping around near as much. And I just the confidence, man, you get at that distance, which was what my max before was amazing. And, uh, you know, I don't spend a ton of time out there. I still, I still spend more time at 20 than anywhere else, but, um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad, but getting, getting further out for me has really helped me find a, a new kind of max distance, you know, that I'm so confident and comfortable with that, uh, I feel better. I feel better going to the field, you know, with my bow, getting into a stand or getting into a blind. It's, uh, I feel better about, making sure that that's the shot I take is, is true. And, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to do best by me and best by that animal. Yep. I think a lot of people, you know, you're, you're right. When, you know, if you were a 20 yard shooter and then all of a sudden you started shooting 40 and then obviously, you know, I told you, I'm like, well, we're going on a moose hunt. So, you know, ideally we're wanting to call the moose right in and hopefully you get a shot, you know, right close. But if you need a follow-up shot, it's good that you know what all your pins can do, you know, don't. And that, I think that was a conversation you and I had, you know, when we planned that hunt, which is why you started going out and shooting those longer distances. And, you know, you're right. Once you start to push the envelope and practice, it's almost like you really don't even want to shoot at the shorter distance. We don't, we've got a target in our yard at 20 yards, but it's like the best looking target there is because no one shoots at it. <laughs> you know, everyone, I think, and even back when I shot, when I was shooting professional 3d, you know, our max was 50. I spent most of my time, the high majority of my time shooting groups at 50. Now I'd check my marks and when I would go out and actually judge targets, shoot one arrow at a time and do that, you know, I would shoot all the distances, but when it came to actually working on form, I would pick that longer distances that was at the high end of, of my max. And that's where I would spend the high majority of my practice time. And then once I moved into like feet of field, um, which was 60 meters, so 66 yards, I shot at the 60 meter face 70, 80% of my time. And then when I moved to, you know, outdoor FIDA with a 90 meter uh, target, I shot at 90 meters all the time. And, you know, when people would say, well, why is your, you know, why are your 50 meter scores so good? Well, it's half the distance to me. You know, if I'm, if I'm, if the microscope I'm putting on myself is at twice the distance, then I feel like I'm going to be twice as good when I'm half the distance. So, you know, I think it's a, a good thing for people to learn, but 
I do want to, I guess, go on record and say just because you've got an 80-yard pin doesn't mean you should start slinging arrows at animals at 80 yards. There's so much that can happen, and there's so much that can factor in um, the type of arrow you're shooting, the noise behind it, the type of vein you have, the type of broadhead that's on the front, anything that's going to contribute noise, you know, how loud your bow is, the speed of your arrow, you know, how, you know, obviously you go down into Texas, you start shooting past 25 yards, the way those animals react, good luck. I mean, I know that I've shot at some javelinas at 30 yards to where even with my speed at my draw length, I probably won't shoot further than 20 yards at some of those animals that turn inside out like that. You know, you just, it's not, regardless of whether or not you're accurate, if your target's not in the same place when the arrow gets there, it doesn't matter how good you shoot, you know. So you kind of have to factor so many of those things in. But, you know, you definitely hit the nail on the head. A bow hunter at any level can improve themselves by, well, one, learning to get their finger around the trigger and be patient on it, and then also, you know, pushing their envelope on, you know, how far they think that they should be practicing at because you're going to find out really quick a a whitetail kill zone at 20 yards is going to look enormous compared to if you spend some time shooting, you know, putting your Glendale buck in the backyard and shooting at it at 50, you know, it's going to, the sight pictures are going to look so much more promising. Absolutely. I, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not going to speak to the, the long distance stuff near as much as you, um, because I, I definitely am not there and, uh, don't know if I ever will be, but, uh, it, it, I just do the distance stuff so that I am comfortable in the ranges that I, I already was felt were my comfort zone. Now they're just even more solidified as being confident, confident zones, if you will, um, because because of that that target stuff that I do at distance now. I'm I actually last year I had it at a shot shot at an elk at sixty, and uh, because of the things that you said, it was windy. Um, he was alert. I just I didn't take it, and even though I've been shooting at sixty a lot in preparation for that hunt and for our Canada hunt, I didn't feel comfortable taking a shot and uh and let him walk um if he'd been at 30 i don't know <laughs> but just the, the fact that uh that i've been shooting at distance it didn't mean that just because i've been shooting 60 70 80 that that i was ready to take that shot because i wasn't and i didn't um but i just i can't speak enough i can't pass if you haven't done it if you haven't shot a distance to make your 20 30 40 feel like you said that the target's enormous and you just feel just solid um, about where that, that, that arrow is going to go. It's, it's a real, it's a really good feeling. It's fun. It's for me, I love to go shoot 60 and then, you know, kind of like, okay, let's do a 30 and watch this. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's, watch, it's, it's watching arrow flies is so fun. I mean, I know that, um, I used to shoot with a guy, he had quite a bit of money, but you know, he would go out rifle shooting and the only thing he liked to shoot with was tracer rounds. And just because watching things fly is cool. I mean, it, it really is, you know, it's, it's fun to see that. And, uh, you know, that's for me, that's what I just continue to like about archery is, you know, anytime you can see an arrow, leave the bow and tick tock right into the, right into the spot, you know, it's supposed to go at, it's a good feeling for sure. But, uh, go ahead, man. No, no, I, it, it, it is. I, I try not to 
watch my arrow too much. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to watch it if you're shooting like right when you shoot. Wait for it to like clear the bow first. Oh, I, I don't. I try not to get distracted. I needed to be. I needed to be focused. Uh, but no, it's. Uh, I for me just and we don't need to, to belabor this. But for me, just shooting period is uh, is therapy. Um, oh yeah. You know, not it's not about putting holes in something. It's just about getting out and drawing back and you know and making progress you know grouping grouping good i mean i i hate ruining arrows but if i can if i'm i'm doing the dumb thing and i'm shooting at the same point a lot and and, and knocking veins off or you know sticking something straight up the back of another one um it hurts my pocketbook but at times i'm like okay i'm i won't do that again but it feels good to be able to do it <laughs> um yeah, so that's absolutely. yeah for me again concrete jungle here in southern california and i got a couple ranges and a couple places here that i like to go at lunch or after work and man it's uh it's a heck of a lot better than sitting in traffic that's for sure <laughs> all right well we're uh running short on time here but steve uh i sure appreciate it um and uh for any of you guys out there who are looking for uh a new side by side, you know, make sure you check out the, the Yamaha Rhino. I'm, you know, I had this podcast because I do really enjoy mine. I've been having a ball on it and, uh, you know, I kind of made a post on it and I was out moving stands and thought, you know, this would kind of be an off the wall subject that would, uh, you know, be good for people to hear, especially during this time of the year. It's a great time to, uh, to be out on those great time for camping, having a vehicle like that. Um, great time for hanging stands, trimming lanes, doing some TSI work, food plots, all that good stuff. But, uh, thanks Steve again for joining me and, uh, you know, hopefully you have a, an awesome year this year. I know you got a cool moose or a elk hunt coming up and definitely want to see some pictures of that sucker. I'll, I'll, I'll send them to you if I, if I, if I'm successful, hopefully I am. I just, like I said, I like getting out and Thanks for having me. You said Yamaha Rhino, by the way. You meant Yamaha okay. Viking. I yeah. know. I know how hard it can be. Trust me. I did say Viking to well, myself. I've, and my I've had the stop saying Rhino. Yeah, I had my Rhino for so long. I cried when I sold it. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. And thanks for you know. I, I know it's not a sales pitch medium, but uh, thanks for taking some time to talk about it. It's, uh, people got to get out. They got to get into them and, and drive for themselves to really to, to to know that what we're talking to them about is true and. But if you want to check it out on the web, just go to yamahaoutdoors.com. And, and, uh, and Dudley, we appreciate you letting us be a, a part of your world. It's, it's cool. Yeah, all right. Thanks, dude. I appreciate it. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com. <laughs>